Glory to God. So on Trinity part number two, we're coming back into this study on the Trinity. And one of the ways that we opened last time is we said the word Trinity is actually not in the Bible. It's the concept that's in the Bible. Whenever you begin to go through passages of Scripture, one of the things that you'll see is that God builds his doctrines precept upon precept, line upon line, precept upon precept, as he said in Isaiah. So whenever we learn anything about God, it's going to be because we compare one set of passages with another set of passages. That's what it means to go precept upon precept. Whenever you study things about the end times, you'll begin to see the same concept. If you study the pre-tribulation rapture, you'll see that there's, there's different things. There's, there's a clear difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus. And you only get that understanding by comparing line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little there a little. So as we open up here in the Trinity, whenever we're talking about the Trinity, we're going to define it for you. The Trinity is not three gods. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. There's only one God and there's none beside him. So there's one God, but we see three persons of that one God. So whenever you talk about the Trinity, you're talking about one being, one God being three persons. That's it. It's a simplistic way of saying it, but there's only one God being. We're human beings. Dogs are canine beings. Um, you know, you can go down the line, but there's only one God being. What makes God God? That's very important. Let's look here in Psalm 113, and we're going to start in verse number 3. Hallelujah. Verse number 3 says, From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? The key part I want you to see in this passage is who is like unto the Lord our God. I want you to look at that because what he's telling you here, and, and for God to do anything in heaven or earth, he humbles himself because God created heaven and earth. I want you to think about that. There's nothing that you can compare to God. Who is like our God? Who is like the Lord our God means that there's no specific box that you can put God in except for what God tells you about himself. So God's not like anything He's unlike anything. He's unlike anything. He's, there's nothing like him. Who is like our God? So if, whenever we begin to talk about the Trinity and the triune nature of God and that he's three persons and one being, and you say, well, well how is that? I, that's, I don't see that in man. I don't see that in this. I don't, but God's not man. God's not like us. He's unlike us. There's nothing like him. You can't say God's like a hummingbird or God's like a piece of ice or God's like this. God's not like anything. He is unlike everything. So he is separate from creation because he's the creator. He, and it says that he humbles himself to go to heaven and earth. So whenever God does anything in heaven, whenever God does anything in earth, he humbles himself, meaning he condescends down to get into that place where the angels dwell. I want you to think about something. Angels were created. God created the angels. The angels live in heaven. That means God had to create heaven, and that means that God existed before heaven. God had to create a canvas, a place. He had to create a space for them to live in, but God doesn't need space to live. He's, he's immaterial. He's spirit. He is uncreated. He was there before time, before space, before matter. He was there before molecules. He was there before light. He was there before gas. He was there before electrons and neutrons. He was there before all that. So where did he live? He just was. There, there was not a where. He just is. He, he just is. That's it. He just is. And you say, well, I can't understand that. Well, that's because we're not God, right? You just have to understand that, the, that there is a concept in the Bible that speaks of the eternal nature of our God. We talked last time, and this is just a quick review. There's four main things we talked about that, that make God God. There's things, and, and nobody can be part of these qualities lest they are God. And that first one is eternality. God alone is eternal. 
God alone is eternal. These are four qualities that are that only God can can possess, okay? So the eternality of God. Then the then there's three O's: omnipresence, omnipotent, and omniscient. Those are fancy words. Omnipresence means that God's everywhere at the same time. God can deal with you and he can deal with somebody in China at the same time. God's not bound by space. He's omnipresent. He can be in heaven and he can be under earth at the same time. He can be here in Timbuktu. God's the only one that's omnipresent. The devil's not. See, that's one of the misconceptions we have in the church because people say, oh, the devil made me run that red light. And somebody else says, oh, the devil made me run a red light too. Well, the devil can't be in two places at one time, so one of y'all is y'all's flesh, right? And more often than not, we realize it is us that does those things. But it's God who's omnipresent, and the other one is omnipotent. That is all-powerful, that God alone has all the power, all the power. And you might remember that in the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? On earth as it is in heaven. But he has all the power, all the glory, forever. All the power and all the glory, forever. And then the last one is omniscient. That means that God knows everything. You're not going to, you're not going to you know, get into a situation where you know what God knows because God knows all of it. God is omniscient. So those are the four characteristics that, that make God God. And so whenever we look in Scripture and somebody displays those characteristics, we say, they must be God. If, if the Father's eternal, he must be God. And if the Word existed in the beginning with God and was God, then he must be God. And if the Spirit was there in the beginning, he must be God. And so each one of these characteristics, you line up with one of the, the whoever you're looking at, God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the ways that you see a differentiation between um, who is God and who's not. We don't serve four gods, five gods, six gods. We don't serve two gods. We serve one God. But that one God has revealed himself in three persons. Now, there's, there's a couple of problems, and we're going to work through those problems as we go through. I got... I got, um, what we're going to look at is some problems. We're going to look at plurality. We're going to look at personhood. And then we're going to look at pre-existent glory. Now, first off, there's some problems. Whenever you go to the Trinity and the triune nature of God, here's why it's important. Here's why it's important. There, you're, there's a ditch on both sides, okay? And, and for every doctrine in the Word of God, there's a ditch on both sides. Uh, for grace, you can get into grace to where you deny grace, and then you can get over here where you have sloppy grace. But there's the, the work of grace that empowers you to live a holy life unto God. Um, but there's always ditches on both sides. Now, here's the problem. If you deny the Trinity, you're going to end up becoming in one of these camps more than likely. Number one is a Unitarian. A Unitarian is somebody that, that says that Jesus is not God. A Unitarian denies that Jesus is deity. That's it. And so most everybody, if you look at John chapter 1, verse 1, most everybody that looks at that verse says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then when you move to verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh. And so most people from that can, can just take off those two verses that Jesus is God. Okay, so Unitarianism, the ditch that they get into is that they'll end up denying the deity of Jesus to hold on to the exclusiveness of the Father, okay? Then on the other hand, you have the, uh, like what we would call a oneness or modalist camp. Now the problem on that side is they're going to say that Jesus is the Father. They're going to say that, that the Father, the Father incarnated, and then now the Father is the Holy Spirit. So what, the, what it is is that the Father just changes roles depending on what needs to happen in the earth. And the reason that this is wrong and where, why it's important is because it denies the eternal nature of the Son. That's why it's important. Because if it's, if it's only the Father, if the Father is the only person of God, then what happens is that means that the Son had no beginning before Mary birthed him. That means that there was no pre-existence to Jesus. And that, that what we hold on is the eternal nature of Jesus. So in one of the ways that you can understand that 
is because the father can only be a father if there's a son. He's not the father if there's not a son. And in eternity past, in eternity past, he either is the father or he's not the father. And most people don't understand that, but you have to see, look, in order for him to be the father, there has to be a son. There's, in order for God to be loved, there has to be someone for him to love. And we know that the father loves the son and the son loves the father. But the son has an eternal existence because you know, as well as I do, that the father is eternal. And if the father's eternal, then the son has to be eternal. And then the spirit has to be eternal. So there's a relationship and the eternal nature of the sonship of Jesus Christ. Then the third camp would be just pagans. That's where you're just going to believe anybody's God. I'm God, you're God, they're God. We have four gods, five gods. Now we're up to 144 gods. And so they just name anything God. They, they use the word Elohim and they just expand that. So that's where you'll get, um, you know, people that believe that angels are gods. And you'll get, you'll get into the camp of Mormonism where you can become a god. Or word faith, you know, Kenneth Hagin and Copeland. And you can become a god one day. And um, Seventh-day Adventists, they actually believe in a tritheistic god. Um, there's, you know, Hinduism, they believe everything's God. Um, you can, in new age, new age, you know, we're all gods, you know, it's just about you thinking that you're God. That's how you become a God. So those three things are the problems and why it's important to know the triune nature of God, the triune nature of God. Now, first off, we're going to talk about one of the main problems that people would pose. We, we've laid a lot of groundwork and we're going to dig a little bit deeper in this uh, study on the Trinity. So the first thing I want you to do is go with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at a common, uh, a, a common passage that a lot of people know and that you should know as part of the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to look specifically here down into verse, we'll, we'll start with verse 18, but we're going to look specifically at verse number 19. One of the, one of the things that someone would say is that there's an issue with the names because you, you can't have multiple people having the same name. You can't have multiple people having the same name. Okay? So whenever you think about God, a lot of people have a problem with this plurality of persons sharing the name of God. Uh, but the name God in Hebrew is actually plural. It's actually a pluralistic word. Elohim means gods. So in, you know, in the, even in the Jewish Shemais, it says uh, the Lord our gods, the Lord our gods. He's one God but it's plural in nature. Now here in Matthew chapter 28, verse number 18, it says, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name, now that's singular, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. But I want you to see, it doesn't say the names. So you're not going out in, in baptizing in three different gods. You're not going out in, in, in baptizing in the, in the you know, three different uh, tritheistic God. It's one name, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now, now, one thing that you need to see about this is there's an authority aspect to the name. If you've ever seen a show, I don't know if they show them anymore, but, you know, the, the, uh, the police, whenever they would chase somebody, they would say, stop in the name of the law. Well, the law doesn't have like a proper name. When, when a police officer says stop in the name of the law, what they mean is stop in the authority of the law. And that's, the, that's similar to what Jesus is teaching here. There's an authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That authority is that, that, that that's God, okay? So whenever somebody looks at that verse, sometimes people get a little bit mixed up and they wonder, well, how can three persons share one name? Well, God actually does that in the book of Genesis. I want to show you that. It's, so turn with me to Genesis chapter 5, and we're going to compare and see how God does with Adam. So Genesis chapter 5. And we're going to begin in verse number 1 and then read verses 1 and 2. 
So there is that authority aspect. So whenever, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say stop in the name of the law, but it just, it simply means in the authority of the law, you need to stop. And so that's the same way that we baptize. We baptize in the authority of God. That's, he gave us that authority. And in the verse before it, a lot of people don't make this connection, but the verse before it said all power was given to Jesus. And then he gave that authority for you to go and teach and make disciples and baptize. It was all about that authority. And so uh, it's very important to see that because sometimes people get mixed up on the plurality, plurality part of that. But you probably will never see them read this verse. So Genesis chapter 5 verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Is him singular? Is him singular? Right? Okay. Verse number two. Male and female created he them. Is that plural? Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. In the day when they were created. Do you see that? They had a singular name. There's two people, Adam and Eve. There's two people, male and female, two, that had one name. So that right there shows you that there can be an instance where two, at least two persons share a singular name. And that, that helps you to understand that there can be three persons that share the name God. So Jesus can be God, the Father can be God, the Holy Spirit can be God. Well, how, how can you serve one God when there's three persons of it? Well, the same way that Adam and Eve were two persons, but God called them by one name, Adam. See, it's that same principle. God, God, God doesn't think of the way that we think. His ways are above our ways. And so when he looked on Adam and Eve, he called them Adam. He didn't say Adam and Eve. He said, that's Adam. Both of them, that's Adam. And the way that we look at God is you, you can call the Holy Spirit God. You can call Jesus God. You can call the Father God. But it's, it's only one God. So one of the things that, that is necessary to understand right here is that there can be a plurality of persons that share a singular name. Okay? That's your first one. There can be a plurality of persons that share a singular name. That's very important because if you'll get that down, it'll help you to not uh, get off track. It'll help you to not get off track whenever somebody comes to you either from the Unitarian side or the oneness modalist side or even the pagan side. It'll help you in that aspect. Amen. So here you see, now there are other instances, and we, we're not going to have time to go there, but there are other instances that this same thing happens. How many of you know that um, it, uh, several times in the, um, like in the book of Kings, it said that, that God, that the whole nation had one heart. The whole nation had one heart. So there was a plural of people that shared one common thing, one heart. And other times the nation would be given one mind. They would all put their mind to that one thing. They would be given one mind or one heart. And that, that happens often. And whenever uh, you see that, it's the same and similar concept that we're talking about here. There's a plurality of persons that share a singular name or a singular quality. Um, so the next one that we're going to get into is the personhood. There, there's a, the aspect of the personhood. So to do that, we're going to go over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Now, what does it mean to be a person? Because we, you surely have heard people say that, that there's three persons in the Godhead. Now, what does it mean for God to be a person? What does it mean for God to be a person? Whenever we talk about person, we're just talking about somebody that is relational. We're talking about somebody that has a mind, that has a will, that has emotions, that can experience things, that can uh, talk, that can be spoken to. Uh, we're talking about how you can be relatable. So, so, for instance, if you're talking to the wall and you believe the wall's a person, you might think that, but the wall's not relatable to you. Like, the wall can't be grieved. The wall can't be uh, laugh at your joke or, you know, tell you what to do. You, you might be messed up in the head, but the wall's not, right? The wall's not communicating. 
But for something to have personhood, it means that there's a mind, will, emotions, there's a relational aspect to it. So whenever we're talking about God has three persons, that's what we're meaning. We're meaning that you can relate to God. You can relate to the Father. You can relate to the Son. You can relate to the Holy Ghost. You can talk to the Father. You can talk to the Son. You can talk to the Holy Ghost. You might hear from the Father. You might hear from the Son. And you might hear from the Holy Ghost. They might, you, you could grieve the Father. You could grieve the Son, and you could grieve the Holy Ghost. And there's this relational aspect that we have to deal with when we're talking about the personhood of God. So what we're going to look at first is the Holy Ghost, because oftentimes he's the one left out the most. We talked last time about Jesus a lot because we talked about the two powers in Genesis, Genesis chapter 18 and 19, and how, you know, it's such a beautiful illustration of the, of the two Jehovahs in Genesis 19 that, that are clearly seen there. Uh, but here we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. We're going to start with him first. So John chapter 14, I want to bring you all the way down to verse number 16. And if you read all three of these chapters, you, you'll, you'll get it too. But I, want you to, I just want to point out something. Now, because the reason why we're going to start with the Holy Spirit too, like I said, most people forget about the Holy Spirit. But if you talk to someone who's a Unitarian or somebody like that, they're going to call the Spirit an impersonal force. That it's just a spirit, that it's not a person, it's impersonal. But we're going to show you that there is a personal aspect to the Holy Ghost because God wants you to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, okay? Now watch this. John chapter 14, verse number 16. He's, Jesus said, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I want you to see there's a lot of personal pronouns in there. And I'm not trying to be an English teacher, because I'm not. I'm from East Texas. Uh, I throw out the slang. But I want you to see that there's personal pronouns in there because he, the, the Lord Jesus is calling the Holy Spirit He and Him. He will be in you. He will come. He, and, and so that shows you that He has personhood, that there's a relatable aspect to the Holy Spirit. He's not saying it will come to you. It will be a blessing to you. It will help you. It will guide you. He's not saying that. He's saying He, meaning just like Jesus was a person standing there talking, the Holy Spirit is a person who would come and talk. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit talks? Have you heard the Holy Spirit talk to you? Do you believe the Holy Spirit could guide you and lead you, comfort you? Do you believe the Holy Spirit would help you and, and be a comfort to you? Do you believe the Holy Spirit is in you? I want to show you how the Holy Spirit speaks. So let's go over there to um, Acts chapter 10. We'll start with Peter first. Peter. We'll start with Peter. Acts chapter 10, verse number 19. We're looking at the personhood of the Holy Ghost, and then we're going to look at the personhood of Jesus. Because it, it, we're going to look at it in a different way. So, again, is the Holy Spirit relational? Does he have a mind? Does he have a will? Does he have emotions? Does he speak? Does he talk? Can he be grieved? These are all important things in order for you to know the Holy Ghost is a person and he's God. Acts chapter 10, verse number 19. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down and go with them doubting nothing, for I have sent them. See that? The Holy Spirit is calling himself a person for sure. This is a verse that a lot of people miss whenever they begin to, to lose sight of the personhood of the Holy Ghost. But here the Holy Ghost said, I have sent them. You see that? He not, only, not only did he tell them what to do, but he's coming into Peter defending what he did. He's saying, look, I told them to come. So you need to get down there to them. So that tells you that the Holy Spirit had a will. There was a will going on. There was emotions going on. There was a desire that the Holy Spirit had, which was to get Peter to do what he sent him to do because he sent these other guys to do what he sent them to do. So he said, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit spake to Peter, 
And then the Holy Spirit said that he sent them. So that's very important for you to see. Uh, and we're going to just double up on that. Just go a couple of chapters over to chapter 13. And this is a passage that you've probably read before, but you probably didn't see the personal pronoun part of it with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 13. It says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Listen to this, verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Now that's powerful. If you want to look at, there's, there's at least two people that you can see clearly in verse 2. Look at that. It says that they ministered to the Lord. Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord? Is that Jehovah God? That's God Almighty, right? They're ministering to God Almighty. And then the Holy Ghost says, separate them for me for the work I called them to. Now that's powerful. That shows you that the, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. There's a differentiation between the Holy Spirit and the Father right there clearly. And not only that, but the Holy Ghost considers himself yet again a person because he said, I have called them. He didn't say the Father called them. He didn't say the Son called them. He said, I called them, right? So there's a, there's a personhood to the Holy Ghost that is clearly seen, and there's other examples, but we're not here just to go through all kinds of, you know, hundreds of examples. But I want you to see, because people will lie and they will say that the Holy Spirit is either A, an impersonal object or an impersonal feeling, or B, the Holy Spirit is the Father. It's neither. You see it clearly. It's neither. The Holy Spirit is his own person, but he's God. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's God. And so there, that shows you right there the, the personhood. And when, So why is that important? Because that shows you that he's God. He's not just the forgotten person of the Trinity. He's not just the, the catch-all. He's not just the one that does the cleanup work, like the janitor after church or something like that. He's not just the one that's the afterthought. He's as much God as the Father is. He's as much God as the Son is. In order for somebody to call someone else into ministry, they need to be God. In order for somebody else to send somebody out, they need to be God. In order for you know, the Holy Spirit to be able to communicate to the people that Peter was going to be sent to, he had to be God to be in, because that shows you his omnipresence and it shows you his omniscience. Again, those are qualities that only God would have. And here you, see his, here you see some of the power or the authority that the Holy Ghost has because he was able to commission Paul into the battlefield. He was able to commission Barnabas and Paul. So uh, Barnabas and Saul, it says. So those right there show you the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to talk about the personhood of Jesus. Um, and to do that, we're going to start with John chapter number 8. So John chapter number 8. This is all establishing a differentiation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's, that's what we're laying out. That's the groundwork we're laying. That there's a differentiation between the persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So John chapter number 8, verse number 17. It is also written in your law. Notice he didn't say it was, it was Jewish law. Okay, just notice that. It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bear witness of me. Now that shows you right there, Jesus didn't consider himself to be the Father. And if anybody, if anybody knows, it'd be Jesus. Like, there's no, there's no pretense about it. Jesus had no misconceptions. He did not claim to be the Father. Now, he did say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But that's because he only did what the Father wanted him to do. He submitted to the Father's will. 
He did everything expressly that God the Father wanted him to do. Nobody else could ever have heard, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Because Jesus did everything that the Father sent him to do. But I want you to see, though, that Jesus himself didn't consider himself to be the Father. He considered himself to be the Son. He said, this, there's two men that bear witness, and he said, I'm one, I bear witness of myself, and then my Father. My Father does. The one that sent me. So there's a differentiation. Okay? I'm not, he's not claiming to be the Father in flesh. He's claiming to be the Son in flesh. He's not claiming to be the Father in flesh. He's claiming to be the Son in flesh. And that's a, big, um, that's a big thing to know and understand as you learn and study more about the Trinity. This is, this, this is going to be one of those things that you're going to have to learn because there's going to be people that creep into churches. There may be YouTube videos that you see. There may be teachings that arise because I promise you the devil knows his time's short. And the Trinity is one of the most foundational, essential doctrines of the church. This is one of the most hotly contested issues that the church has ever had. This and baptismal regeneration and things like that. But the, the triune nature of our God is going to come under assault at some point in your life. And you're going to have to know. Muslims will come at you against it. Jews will come at you against it. Even people that consider themselves Christians will come at you against it. And different things like that. So here you see plainly that Jesus didn't consider himself to be the father he didn't consider himself to be the father in flesh and part of the personhood is the will now this is a verse that you probably are familiar with but let's go look at it in Luke chapter 22 where Jesus submits his will to the fathers Luke 22 verse 42 and we we know and understand that that the father's God the son's God and the Holy Spirit's God but again we're just showing a differentiation between the personhood of each person of the, of the Godhead. So Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus said here, saying, Father, if thou be willing, thou means you. Thou is singular, right? It's not, there's not a we there. If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So that, that's a familiar verse. It should be a familiar verse. You should hear that one often in church. But Jesus lays down his own will. He said, it's not about my will, but thy will. That shows two wills. If there's two wills, there's two persons. Because whenever you're talking about person, you're talking about relational, that there's a will. They can be grieved. They can speak. So that shows you yet again that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is not the Son. There's a differentiation between the persons, but yet they are the one God. They are one in essence. Okay? Most, if you talk to a, 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 an apologist or a, a theologian, they'll tell you that there's one essence of God. And the Father has the complete essence. The Son has the complete essence, and the Holy Ghost has the complete essence. They don't divide it up. The Father doesn't have, you know, it's not like a 60-40-20 split, or, you know, it's not like 33-33-33. They don't split up. the. They, they're all completely and fully God. They're all fully God, okay? Um, so... This, again, this shows that there's a differentiation between the will of the Son and the will of the Father. The reason that's important, it establishes yet again two persons, two persons, that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. So that, that's going to kind of button down personhood, but I do want you to see that one aspect, and I don't have time to touch on it, but how many of you know that Jesus said that uh, the blasphemy, the, the sin that's not going to be forgiven is the blasphemy of what? The blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. That yet again shows the divinity of the Holy Ghost. Because you, look, you, you know, you, you blaspheme the President of the United States, you might go to jail or something, I don't know, but it's not the unpardonable sin. It's only when you're blaspheming God. That's it. And, and Jesus said this is a blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. So that yet again shows you more that there's a personhood there. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Paul even teaches that. You know, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He can be vexed. He can be grieved. Um, we can bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit. We can sadden him. Uh, we can, you know, we can, and I don't know about you, but I'm sure there's lots of times in my lives that, that I grieved the Holy Spirit. Um, that I, sh- I, you know, maybe I didn't do something that he wanted me to do. Or maybe I did something he didn't want me to do. Or maybe I said something that I know the Holy Ghost didn't want me to say. Well, you know, we might can put it out of our mind, but the Holy Spirit don't. He can be grieved. And those are those things that we need to go to the Lord and ask forgiveness of. Um, and, and to get those things right with him, whatever they may be. Amen. But he can be grieved. You can blaspheme him. And he does have his own person. So I just hope that you see that. And then that the father's not the son and the son's not the father. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is the preexistent glory of Jesus. This is where it starts getting good. So John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're going to talk about the preexistent glory of Jesus. Why is that important? Well, I told you earlier that in the oneness or modalist camp, what happens is if you believe that the Father is the Son, he's just in a different mode, you've, you've deleted all the preexistent glory of the Son. You've, ex- you, you've deleted his eternal nature. You, you, you only have the one person of the Father. You've deleted him being a Father, and you've deleted the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. He's eternally the Son. He's not generationally a Son. You know, like uh, we, whenever we had our Son, you know, uh, you know, that was awesome. This is a generational thing. But Jesus being the son is not, it's not like he came out of a woman, okay? It's a relational aspect is what it is, that he's submissive to the father. Um, John chapter 17, verse number five. John 17, verse number five. It says, and now, O father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I want you to see that. The key part of that is the glory that I had with thee. Not the glory that I had, the glory that I had with thee. In other words, meaning there was a relational aspect that Jesus and the Father had prior to him becoming incarnate in flesh. That shows you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus pre-existed coming into the womb of Mary. And not only that, but he didn't pre-exist by himself, but he had a glory that was shared with someone, namely the Father in this verse. So that shows you that there's an eternal nature to Jesus Christ. He didn't, he didn't begin at, at Christmas. He didn't begin right there. He had, he had an eternal existence. He had no beginning. As he told, um, you know, the, it, later on in John chapter 8, whenever he was talking to the Jews and they said, you know, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And what that verb means is I am the self-existent one. He always has been, he is, and he always will be. As it says in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, if, in order for Jesus Christ to be the same yesterday, he's not just talking about our yesterday, he's talking about everybody's yesterday, <laughs> meaning he's always been. He is, and he always will be. So this shows us here that there's a glory. Now, that, that part that he says right here, with thee, you, you can't be somebody and be with somebody at the same time. So if somebody gets into the, the, the oneness issue, you have to deal with that because the, the Jesus can't be the Father and be with the Father at the same time. In order to be with somebody, you can't be somebody, right? You have to be. So if Jesus is with the Father, he's not saying I am the Father. He's with him. This is a, is there's, there's two there, two persons in the one Godhead. So he said, um, the glory that I had with thee before the world. Now, what what existed before the world? God. Before the world, only God existed, right? Before the world. And so that, again, that shows you he's timeless, spaceless, he's immaterial, he's not created, 
He's, you know, he's uncreated. In fact, he's the creator of all things. Nothing, John 1, 3, nothing was created without him. Nothing was made that was made except that Jesus made it, according to John 1, 3. And so, you know, he existed before there was a speck of dust. He existed before there was a speck of light. He spoke everything. He's, he created, in order for him to create angels, he had to create heaven because there was no place. In order for him to create an angel, he had to create an environment for them to live in. And same thing with us. He had to create the world before he created us. Well, that means that he, that, that he lived somewhere before heaven. We're all like, we're going to heaven, 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 heaven. Well, hey, I'm just going where Jesus is. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and so uh, that's an important aspect. Now, there's another one that I want to get to, Galatians chapter 4, and that's going to lead us to go into this a little bit deeper. Galatians chapter 4. Then we're going to crank it up a little bit. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 3. This is a preexistent glory that Jesus had. He didn't. It's not that the Father became the Son at the Incarnation. The Son always existed. The Father always. Nobody really doubts that the Father always existed. So that's why it's important. And, and, and I, I, I get a little bit animated because it's important to me because I love the fact that Jesus is my creator. I love the fact that he's preexistent. I love the fact that he's uncreated. And so I love to, to make sure that you know, others that I talk to know that Jesus is the eternal son. He didn't become a son at the incarnation. He's the eternal son. And he had a, he had a glory with the father before everything was. And, and that glory, when people, when people don't understand the Trinity, they delete that glory. They delete that existence that he had. And so, um, I don't know about you, but it's important to me that Jesus exists. All right, so verse 3, Galatians 4, verse 3. It says, even so, when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. And I'm going to stop right there. Why am I showing you that verse? Because it shows you that the son was sent to be made of a woman. That means that the son had a preexistence. And that the son left glory to be made of a woman. That's Emmanuel, which is God with us. This is the, the virgin shall conceive, right? And she shall bear a son and you shall uh, call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Isaiah chapter 7. And so this verse parallels perfectly with Isaiah 7 verse 14 because Jesus existed in heaven, and when the fullness of time came, the Father said, okay, now it's time for you to go incarnate. And that was the plan. That was the plan from the beginning. He was the lamb from the foundation of the world. That was God's redemption plan. And when it was time, it was time. And the son, look, he didn't stop being God. He had to lay aside glory, not deity. If you go back and you read Philippians chapter 2, it shows you plainly that he did not think it robbery to be made equal with God, meaning he wasn't taking anything away from God to be called equal to God. But he had to robe himself in flesh. Why? So that he could bleed and die on the cross for our sins. So that he could redeem fallen man. So that he could shed his blood and purchase us with his own blood, as we'll see at the end. Now, it's important to see this, that God sent the son to be made of a woman. Right? So he's not saying, oh, there's an awesome person. I'm going to call that one my son. This is, this is a plan. This is Jesus pre-existing in heaven and then being made of a woman. Very important to see. So that shows you that it's not the Father that sent himself. One more aspect of it. Just to further differentiate between the Father and the Son. It doesn't say the Father decided it was time, so he went. It says that the Father told the Son it was time to go. Okay? So that's... Very important, very foundational, um, and, and do you believe that Jesus is God? One of the most beautiful passages that shows that Jesus is God is in Hebrews chapter 1. Let's track over there. 
We got just a couple of more places that I want to take you to. Hebrews chapter 1. This is, again, the pre-existent glory of the Son. It's more of the pre-existent glory of the Son. I hope you know, um, just to kind of keep everything together, we dealt with uh, a couple of problems of the Trinity. We dealt with the plurality of the, of the name, of the singular name. We dealt with the personhood. Now we're dealing with the pre-existent glory. It all lines up with the letter P. Help you remember those things. So to further go into the pre-existent glory of the Son, look in verse number 8. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 8. Notice, pay attention to what God's saying. Pay attention. It says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, Therefore, God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. What is all that telling us? It says that God is calling the Son God. That's what it's telling you. Well, how can they both be God? Because they're the same God being. They're just different persons of the same God being. That shows you, this verse shows you that there is, and, and, and this is prior to the incarnation. This is prior to that, but he's saying to the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Can you imagine that? Think about it. The Father looks at the Son and he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. What a powerful, what a powerful verse that teaches us of not only the deity of Jesus Christ, but the triune nature of our one God. That, that the Father can call the Son God. I mean, you can't get away with you can't get around that. The Father completely, emphatically, clearly shows us Jesus is God. And then in the very next verse, God is still God. The Father is still God. So, and, and again, we don't serve three gods. We're not tritheists. We went through that last week, Isaiah chapter 44. There's no God beside me. That's what God said. There's only one God. So how is this possible? Well, it's possible when one God has three persons. One essence, three persons. And so th this, again, is when the Son is called God by God, it makes a pretty good emphatic statement to all of us that Jesus is God. There's no him hawing around that if somebody shies away from that. One of the problems that we see in the church today is people shy away from calling Jesus God. They, a lot of times people call Jesus good, he's great, he sacrificed for us, he did a great thing for us, but a lot of people just come a little bit short of saying Jesus is God manifest in flesh. That's A lot of people just fall a little bit short of that. And when you go over there to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, I mean, again, the Scripture says the same thing, that God, you know, was incarnate in flesh. So, very powerful. And I'm going to show you one more. I'm going to show you one more about the, the glory of Jesus, okay? Because how many of you know that God doesn't share his glory with, right? God doesn't share his glory with any other being, right? He doesn't share his glory with any other being. So if somebody shares glory with Jesus or somebody shares glory with the Father, it has to be the same, right? Let's go over there and look at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 11. It says, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000, times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And most theologians will tell you that that equals at least 100 billion. I don't know. That's what I've read. So verse number 12, these, these uh, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And listen to this. Pay really close attention. And every creature, every creature. Now, let's just define that. If something's a creature, it's created. Okay? A creature. Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth 
and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying. Now, let's stop right there. Do, do you think that that includes everything created? Everything in heaven, earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that's in all of them. So every creature. That, in other words, what John is writing right here is he's putting a line in the sand. And on this line of the sand, he's putting everything that was ever created. Everything that had a, be, that had a beginning is on this side. If it had a beginning, it's on this side of the line in the sand. That's what he's showing us. So if, 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 you know, I had a beginning, right? I had a beginning. I'm on this side. You had a beginning. You're on this side. Everything. Angels, they had a beginning. They're on this side. The cherubim, the seraphim, they're on this side. They were created. There was a point in time when God said be, and they were. They had a beginning. So everything on this side of the sand created, had a beginning. Now let's continue. It says in, in um, he heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. Notice what's on the other side. There's two beings on the other side, two persons on the other side, right? The, there's the one on the throne, and then there's the lamb that was slain. So that tells you right there, and if, if you'll go back up, you'll see that the seven spirits were sent out from the throne of God to do all this. So the Holy Spirit was working in all the created things while the one on the throne and the lamb were worshipped. Now, now, so that shows us, that shows us that there's more than just the Father being worshipped in heaven. There's the one on the throne and there's the Lamb. That's two persons. It's only one God, but it's two persons right there. And not only that, how many of you know uh, whenever Jesus was tempted in the, do you remember whenever he was tempted by the devil? And the devil said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you this, right? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? You should worship what? God alone. You shall worship God alone. That, you know, the devil wanted worship because he wanted to be like the Most High, right? The devil, Lucifer, he wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to worship. He wanted to be worshiped. That's all that devil worship is. He wanted to be worshipped. But we know we're supposed to worship God alone. That's what Jesus told Lucifer that day. He said, thou shalt worship God alone. Him only. And he rebuked the devil. But yet here, Jesus is being worshipped along with the one on the throne by everything created. Right? What a beautiful passage. Now that shows us clearly that there's not, there weren't modes to God or a, a, a oneness of person, but there was at least a dual person there. And, and if you'll read up earlier, the Spirit of God was working in all of creation to cause them to worship. Nobody worships God on their own. It's the Spirit of God that causes people to worship. And so the Spirit of God was searching out all of heaven, under heaven, in earth, all of that and causing them to bow down and worship and say blessing and honor and glory and power to him that sits on the throne and to the lamb. So glory to God for that. Amen. Now there's um, a couple of things that I, I, um, I do want to point out, but we're going to close in Acts chapter 20. I'm going to close here because we began it here on our first one. So Acts chapter 20. I'm going to close it here, but I'm just going to share a couple of quick points with you as we come to a close. Now, there is a passage. One of the things that people may say is that, you know, is there a passage to where somebody prays uh, to the Father or prays to the Son or prays to the Holy Spirit? That's a common objection that people will say. There is a verse for that, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. If you want to write that down, it shows you that all three of the persons of the Trinity are prayed to in the same verse. 
All three are prayed to in the same verse. It's a benediction. And so all three of them are prayed to right there. So that's another shared glory part. Now here in, in Acts chapter 20, we're going to close with verse number 28. And then we're going to just hit a couple of these quick points. It says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost had made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And you may not have caught it, but hopefully you see it now. All three of the Trinity are in that verse. The Holy Spirit's accomplishing something for the church of God by the blood of the Lamb. I want you to see that. But, I'll, but one of the things I want you to see beautifully, though, is that it says that God purchased the church with his own blood. God's Spirit. This testifies to the plan of salvation. God is spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bone. He doesn't have blood. He doesn't have, he's not made of anything. There's not a substance that you can touch. He's not made of material things. There's no blood flowing through God. And so in order for God to do this verse, which is by us, he purchased us with his own blood, that means he had to condescend. He had to humiliate himself. He had to humble himself and incarnate into a house of flesh that had blood so that he could shed that divine blood on Calvary's hill. He had to go to the cross. It was the joy that was set before him is why he endured the cross, despising the shame, but he did it because it, he was God's way of purchasing us. We don't, we will never understand the depth that God came to to get us. You'll never understand the depth that he stooped to to come here. He was infinitely holy, holy, holy. God had never, you know, defiled himself. God never was in that position. He was above everything. But because his heart was for us, because he had a heart for his children, we were made in the image of God. We had a special place in his heart. And when we fell, God kicked in a plan of redemption, and that plan included him stepping off the throne not laying aside his deity but laying aside that glory clothing it in flesh living a holy life under the law incarnating in this house of flesh allowing people to mock him ridicule him despise him reject him abuse him shame him and kill him and as he bled and died being ridiculed, he was purchasing the salvation for all who would believe. That's what Jesus was doing. And not only did he die on that hill, but he rose from the dead on the third day, conquering death, hell, and the grave, emphatically declaring that he's God, fulfilling the verse that he said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Jesus emphatically declared that he would raise it up again. Go read it. It's John chapter 2. So that shows us yet again the powerful uh, the powerful deity of Jesus Christ and then the triune nature of God. Now, I'm going to cover just a couple of quick hits and then we're going to close. Number one, somebody might say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. We dealt with that. The word Bible is not in the Bible. Okay, just throw it right back at them. You, you call that the Bible, but the word Bible is not in the Bible. So what we're talking about is a concept. Trinity is a concept for the things that we've taught the last two weeks. Okay, It's a concept for what we see. The word Trinity was used before the Council of Nicaea. It was used in the very first church. They used that word. They called it the triunity of God. That's what they called it. Now, somebody might say, well, you know, that's a Catholic teaching. You know, and there's people that have Catholic phobia. Okay, to that you say, but the Catholic Church also believes in the incarnation. The Catholic Church also believes in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. They also believe in the dead burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They also believe that he's coming back again. So just because somebody else teaches it doesn't mean it's wrong. Okay, that's that's. One of the things that you'll hear about the Trinity. Uh, the other thing that you'll hear is, show me in the Bible where Jesus says, I am three persons. Or show me in the Bible where Jesus says, I am a Trinity. You might hear somebody say that. And to that, what, what that is, that's a false line of reasoning. To that, 
you just say, well, show me where Jesus said I'm one person. He never said I'm one person. Okay? It's just, it's faulty logic is what it is. Because people will put on you a parameter or a box that they want you to, but it's, you can't do that on anything. Um, and then one of the other ones that I'll, I'll, I'll uh, just share with you real quick is that, um, you know, if Jesus wasn't God, then the blood that was shed on Calvary's hill was just the blood of a good man. And if it was just, if, if Jesus isn't God and it's just the blood of a good man, then we're still in our sin. So only the blood of Emmanuel could redeem us and purchase us. We just read it. God purchased us with his own blood. So that's a powerful uh, principle. There's a couple of others that, that you may have heard, and if you have, um, you know, we, we can work through those. But I'm going to close right there, and just uh, if anybody has any questions, we can, we can cover some of those. Amen? So we went through, listen, we went through, we went through problems because you— if you have a problem, you're going to end up being Unitarian or modalist or oneness or pagan. So we went through problems. We went through the, the, uh, the plurality of the one name, that you can have multiple people that share one name. We went into the personhood of the Holy Spirit, the personhood of Jesus, the personhood of the Father. And then we talked about the preexistent glory of the Son and then the shared glory on the throne in Revelation. Amen? Glory to God. Let's pray, and if anybody has any questions, we'll cover them. Father, we thank you for this time studying your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true. And God, we pray that your word would be true. And God, we pray that it would be true in us. You would help us to know and understand it. And we pray, God, that you would impart it in our soul, that you would plant it firmly within us, that it would yield a heavenly harvest in the day that you desire. Lord, we pray for your blessing over this Bible study in Jesus' holy name. Everybody says.